what area of real estate is going to benefit from this rising tide? And I talk about all this in the book, this rising tide of demographics in this country. And if you look today, there's four trends, Caleb, that are bolstering the multifamily space. There are millennials, they're saddled with student debt. Their credit might not be as good, especially right now after the COVID-19 situation. They have a hard time, one, saving a down payment and two, getting a loan. Two, I'm going to ask you, what do you think is the, fa- and you might know this, you might have already read it, but the fastest growing group of renters today? Probably the older generation. You nailed it. It's the baby boomers. Yep. They're downsizing. Yep. You know, maybe they don't need a five bedroom home anymore. Maybe they need the equity from their home to retire. Maybe they just want to live in an RV or maybe they want to be a little bit more mobile. So they are renting. Immigrants, and we still have a lot of immigration in this country. That's, that's really the reason that we're still growing as a population. They rent about 75% of the time. And then the other thing is high income earners are also tending to rent more. So people might think, oh, like Chris, you guys buy you know, these properties. It's like you're a slumlord. A lot of the properties we buy, most of, the, most of the residents, they choose to live there. They wanna live in these nice, clean, safe neighborhoods with good schools. This is the Better Wealth Podcast with Caleb Williams. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Caleb. I really appreciate you having me on today. We have a really special relationship. I haven't known you long, but we got connected through a mutual friend. And I think the first first time we talked, we were like, unbelievable. You have a fantastic book, which by the way, everyone is like, Chris is going to give this book away totally for free for everyone that wants to, to know more next level income and you're into real estate. You do life insurance strategy along with real estate, which is like a, an automatic way to get on the show, by the way. I, I love that. And, and you also started at 21, like managing your real estate empire. So Chris, what I want to do is I want to get a little bit of your story. I want the audience of Better Wealth. So Better Wealth is all about creating financial certainty so you can live a more intentional life. And I want them to tap into some of the things that you know about real estate. Obviously, I want them to get this book. And I'm just excited to jam with you, man. Likewise, Caleb. No, I really enjoyed, really appreciative that we got connected because as you said, our first conversation was fantastic. I think I I was like, oh, I'm at like, I got to run. I mean, we we talked and talked and uh, knew we had to talk again after that. Um, So I'm really appreciative. And it's funny, I got, I got your book right here. So everybody can see I got your book on my desk and you got, you got mine on yours. And yes, so anybody that's listening today, uh, check us out at nextlevelincome.com. You can get a free book. Just click on the book link. Link. Uh, my goal is to give away a thousand copies during this COVID crisis. So I think we're 300 in. So there's still plenty of time to get your free copy. Uh, reach out. I don't care if you're a thousand one. You'll get you'll get a free copy. We'll make it happen. Um, so thanks for mentioning that, Caleb. Yeah. So I started my investing career actually before 21. I started in the stock market. I love kind of your um, history as well, Caleb. I was in college. I was racing bikes. I started racing at 14 and it was my passion. It was my love. I wanted to race bikes. If anybody knows anything about bike racing, even, even if you're a professional, you don't make much money. So I looked at other things. I've always been interested in money. My mom, like it's funny, she used to, uh, I had my money I stacked on top of my dresser when I was a kid in little neat stacks. And every once in a while I would disappear because my mom would take it and she put it in the bank. So I was always a saver and I always liked to make money. When uh, my family friend, Clint, who introduced me to cycling, introduced me to what the concept of a Roth IRA and investing, it was like, 
mind blown. And that's why I love your book because you talk about compound interest. And I remember that same upward sloping curvilinear line that was on the page in this Money Magazine article. And I talk about that in my book. Start, I learned everything. I read everything I could about the stock market. I got into day trading. I was making $5,000 a month in college day trading. Um, some months, however, I didn't make money. I actually lost money. And you know, one night, it was like 3 a.m., really morning, right? I couldn't sleep. And I was thinking, do I really want to live like this when I'm not 20, but I'm 40? And what if the numbers are 10 times or 100 times bigger? Because you know, just like you, you know, you have dreams and you think you're like, all right, you know, this is 10 or a hundred thousand dollars. What if it's a million or $10 million when, if this, this plan keeps working, you know, how am I going to feel if I lose half this or, you know, how, you know, do I really want to be staying up in the middle of the night when I got kids? So I started looking into other investment options. My parents were savers. Um, my father died. Uh, he was also from Wisconsin, like you, uh, when I was five years old. He went down to Lake Michigan when his engine failed in his plane. Um, and I think from a young age, I had a very acute concept of how precious life is and that you have to live every day to its fullest potential. And I had another reminder of that in college after my best friend died. So this was all happening around the same time. You know, I was, you know, racing my bike and you know, learning about the stock market and riding this roller coaster and getting hit by a freight train when, when my friend died. Uh, so I knew about real estate from my parents. They had a few properties, started learning about it. And when I realized that you could control the value of real estate more than a stock, and you know, it probably wasn't going to drop, you know, 30, 40, 50% like it did the NASDAQ in the late 90s, it was very appealing to me. And I don't know if I would have been as interested in real estate if I hadn't gone through that experience. So I'm thankful for it. I went, I read everything I could about real estate. I read 250 financial books. That was more than that. But you know, in, in a couple of years, just I was reading a book a week, book two books a week, learned everything I could. Bought my first property at age 21, like you mentioned. Bought another, bought another, bought another, bought another, built my portfolio. And then I thought, oh, all I got to do is go out and get a nice high paying job, pay these properties off as quick as possible. And, and I'm done. I'm financially free. That plan worked great. I was 35 years old. You know, I had good passive income coming in, but I had two sons at this point, And I kind of stopped and looked at my life. And I, I was looking at my real estate portfolio and I thought, one, do I want to manage this? Because it's a pain in the butt to manage single family properties. Hmm. Two, is is this really the best use of my money? And I was getting 7% return on my equity before tax. After tax, it was more like 4%. And as I looked at different options, I, I looked at commercial real estate for the second time in my life, and I came upon multifamily. And that's why I wrote my book. It's called How to Make, Keep, and Grow Your Money Using the Holy Grail of Real Estate. That's why I call multifamily the Holy Grail, because it has all the benefits that I was looking for. But before I did that, before my first son was born, I started my whole life insurance policies on my wife and I, and that was back in 2009. Um, and it's just been, it's been a great vehicle. It's been a great tool that we've used over the past decade. And right now, a month ago during this COVID crisis, I was able to call my life insurance agent. I was able to pull some equity out of my policies. I was able to put in the bank as a cushion. And I, I looked at my wife and I said, I don't know what's going to happen in the second quarter of this year, but I can tell you this, there, we don't have anything to worry about this year. So we're building the house. We got two sons to take care of. We have 
uh, commercial properties. And I told her we're fine because we have this money in our policies as a backstop. So it's just been, it's been wonderful. It's been uh, a really nice blend for what we've done in real estate as well. So a lot, a lot there in your, in your book, chapter three, you talk about opportunity funds. So this is not only a book about real estate, you guys, but it's, it's actually, you write in there a chapter on life insurance and how one could use that for real estate. So definitely a plug for my audience to go check out your book. So a couple things that I just want to address as I hear, hear your story. College, you had a unique, like crazy up and down, like your, 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 your story is very close to mine, by the way. You're accessing, you're doing a lot of things. And what was that? Like you said, you just kind of like woke up one day and you're like, is this what I actually want to do? And then you stumbled upon real estate. What can you go a little bit more into that? And then I want to talk about real estate as the Holy Grail, because how I explain it is you get to invest in something and potentially use leverage, potentially use depreciation. It will Mm -hmm. appreciate most likely and you get cash flow. It's one of the greatest assets that you can own from just those four benefits. And so I want to talk about if you would add or subtract anything to what I'm saying and how, why you call it the Holy Grail. Um, but yeah. I want to go back to that because we talk about ROR saying for return on result. And at a young age, you got clear on what you actually wanted. And man, so many people go to their grave, not clear of what their life yeah. actually they wanted to do. Yeah. I think that's, I want to highlight that again. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to use some words that may, people may listen to it and say, you know, like shake their heads. Um, you know, I was lucky in a lot of ways. Uh, my best friend died. I had just turned 19. He was 18. And I, I put my head down for about a year. I raced my bike. I was winning a ton of races. I was all American that year and I wasn't happy. And the following year I quit racing my bike. I dove really deep into investing and learning about that because I still wanted freedom in my life. I wanted the ability to live every day to the fullest potential that I had. I felt really like I had the obligation to live two lives, a life for myself and a life for my friend, Chris. I thought I'm never going to let an opportunity pass pass me by again. You know whether that was asking a girl out on a date. And today, as we record this, um, my wife and I are going to be celebrating the 19th anniversary of the day we went on our first date. And I will I could tell you that story. It's it's magical. But the bottom line is, I saw her, and I promised myself if I saw her again, I would ask her out. I wouldn't let that opportunity pass me by. So I'm I'm fortunate that that experience shaped me into who I was, but it also put me back and made me evaluate what I was doing. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like a lightning bolt hit. And I decided that this was what I was going to do. It kind of evolved over the course of a couple of years, but, um, knowing that life was finite and I needed to make the most out of it and I needed freedom drove me to be an investor. I needed the freedom to be able to do what I was meant to do, drove me to be an investor. Then at that point, that's when I started to optimize my choices when it came to investing um, at that point. So when you talk about the holy grail of real estate, when you're real estate 101 and then I want to go deeper, real estate 101, why real estate? Yeah, so real estate, I think the great thing about real estate is a lot like life insurance. And we've talked about this previously. There's a lot of similarities. You know, if you if you buy right, if you have the right piece of property, if you have the right life insurance policy, you, know, you have a mortgage, the mortgage is basically set over the term of that mortgage. Your, the amount you're paying for interest goes down 
the amount you're building in equity goes up, just like a life insurance policy. Um, you build long-term equity in that property. Leverage. You can use leverage to buy... Like I bought my first property. It was about $90,000 for less than $3,000 of my own money. I mean, talk about leverage, right? And then tax benefits. So you get these great tax benefits. And what I mean is that we have what we like to call phantom losses or paper losses. And that's from depreciation. So the government says, hey, this property that you own, this building that you own is going, going to go from $90,000 in this previous example to zero over the course of 27 and a half years. But there's a lot of other cool things that you can do during that time period. Or if it's just like with multifamily, you can accelerate that process. But you know, if you had to say, hey, why real estate? One, you get cash flow. Two, you get appreciation. Three, you get great tax benefits. Those are the reasons for real estate. Yeah, and real estate, I mean, there's some worlds that you could live in that just the tax benefits through depreciation, and do you guys do cost segregation as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that is another fancy way to say like you speed up your tax benefits. Yep. And so like if you have a big old tax bill, you could take real estate and potentially wipe out the taxes that you would have to pay because of the depreciation. And that's like, most people understand that over time, real estate can go up. And by the way, it can go down. Can go down. Yep. But the cash flow is is something that, I mean, everyone's got to live somewhere. And so why why do you talk about a certain type of real estate in your book? And why, why don't you talk about the different kinds and then why you call one the holy grail? Because that's a... That's a big statement, by the way. Like, I, I'm sure I'm going to get a couple comments um, as we have different people on the show. They have different opinions. And there are definitely yep. people that I've had on that called something else the Holy Grail. They might not have said it, sure. but it's like, so I want to yep. dive into that as well. Absolutely. And yeah, it's definitely a chart. It's a, it's a charged term, right? The Holy Grail. And I, I, by the way, I love, I love the Indiana Jones movies. So, you know, let's say I'm very, I, I try very hard to choose wisely as the, as the, um, the knight said in the um, movie. So why, why do I call multifamily the Holy Grail? And just to qualify that, the book was written a few years ago. I, I'll go through, I'll, I talk about the process I went through starting in 2012, 2013 to evaluate this. Things may change you know, in the future, but as far as the near term is concerned, I think the next decade, these are the reasons why. So why multifamily? We have demographic trends and I'm a demographic guy. I got into the medical device industry because I knew the baby boomers were going to need surgery. I moved to the Southeast to North Carolina, specifically Asheville from DC, because I wanted to move to a growing region of the country. And then I applied those same demographic models to real estate. So I said, okay, what area of real estate is going to benefit from this rising tide. And I talk about all this in the book, this rising tide of demographics in this country. And if you look today, there's four trends, Caleb, that are bolstering the multifamily space. There are millennials. They're saddled with student debt. Their credit might not be as good, especially right now after the COVID-19 situation. They have a hard time, one, saving a down payment and two, getting a loan. Two, I'm going to ask you, what do you think is the fat? And you might know this, you might have already read it, but the fastest growing group of renters today. Probably the older generation. You nailed it. It's the baby boomers. Yep. They're downsizing. Yep. You know, maybe they don't need a five bedroom home anymore. Maybe they need the equity from their home to retire. Maybe they just want to live in an RV or maybe they want to be a little bit more mobile. So they are renting. Immigrants 
and we still have a lot of immigration in this country. That's, that's really the reason that we're still growing as a population. They rent about 75% of the time. And then the other thing is high income earners are also tending to rent more. So people might think, oh, like Chris, you guys buy, you know, these properties. It's like you're a slumlord. A lot of the properties we buy, most of the most of the residents, they choose to live there. They want to live in these nice, clean, safe neighborhoods with good schools. So, you know, demographics, that's the first thing. Let's talk about some of the investment reasons I mentioned it. So you have we buy properties that are stable, income-producing properties. So you have income. You have what I like to call controlled appreciation. So if you buy a, a single-family home, I like to say that's that's hopeful appreciation. You buy it and you hope it goes up in value. Anybody that's been around for more than 10 years knows that single-family homes go up in value and they go down in value. And I challenge anybody to look back through history, challenge me on that. Tell me that homes go up in value on a straight line. It's like saying the stock market goes up yeah. in average at eight or nine or 10% every year. That's not how it works. It, homes go up and down in value, bigger curves though, a little bit more stable, but multifamily has controlled depreciation. What I mean is that if you buy a multifamily property, it's not valued on what your neighbor's homes are valued on. It's valued on the income you produce from that property. So if you increase the income and or you decrease expenses, you increase the NOI, and that means you increase the value of the property. So you have controlled appreciation. And then the third one is the tax benefits. In most cases, what I like to say is if you're doing it right in real estate, you don't pay taxes. And what, what I really should say is you delay paying taxes. And what you can do is you can offset your current income with depreciation. So you don't have to pay tax on the income that you're, you have. You can do a 1031 exchange or you could pull money out through a refinance. We call it a supplemental loan. And that's kind of like a return of premium, like a dividend and a life insurance policy. You don't pay tax on that either. And then you sell it and people say, well, they're going to get you then, Chris. You got to pay tax when you sell it. Well, the answer is yes, if you take the capital gain. But if you do a 1031 exchange, just like if you do a like-kind exchange with a life insurance policy, and that's why I love the similarities, you can prolong tax again. And by the way, if you pass it on to your heirs in that same example, if my $90,000 townhouse is now worth a million dollars when I pass away and my two sons inherit it, well, the government says, oh, it's now worth a million dollars. They can sell it the next day for a million dollars and pay zero in tax. So you can pro, what I say in the book is you can prolong taxes indefinitely. And the reason I call multifamily real estate the holy grail is, and this is a term that Ray Dalio said, I was reading Ray Dalio, he's uh, Bridgewater Capital. Um, I, I think if you look at it by all, all accounts, he's as if not more successful of an investor than Warren Buffett. Yeah. He says, to be able to increase your return and decrease your risk is the holy grail of investing. And if you look at multifamily real estate, mm -hmm. it has the best, best risk adjusted returns than over, over 20 year periods than any other investment out there. So talk to me about what's currently going on with COVID. I know there's some yeah. places that are like waiving rent or whatever. Is that number one, are you seeing a lot of that happen? And I'm with you. I, when I first moved to Denver, I moved into a luxury apartment, mainly because of the convenience. I had, I was in the city, I had all the, all, all, everything that I wanted, and I just did not want to think about a house. And, and now, a year later, I moved in, but I'm not necessarily a typical Gen Z or millennial. Like, I'm with you. A lot of my friends... I don't think you have, are either. <laughs> a lot of my friends don't have any down payment. 
Right. And it's like the idea of staying in a house for a long period of time, like, I don't know. It's just in a world where I think we're definitely looking at minimalism and, you know, that concept. I don't think we, we're necessarily like, I think people are valuing different things. And you're right. You are seeing that, gen, that baby boomer generation also transfer over. Now, my big devil's advocate with you right now is what happens with coronavirus or things like that where a whole, and no one's able to pay rent. Like what, what are you seeing? And is that, am I just seeing some news articles that are blowing this whole thing out of proportion? It depends. The answer is it depends. So I'll throw some statistics out there and then you can kind of see, you know, where, where we fall in different areas. So for example, if you look at the retail space right now, I was talking to somebody last week and they have, uh, you know, another operator that they work with, uh, operates a retail REIT. So they have retail properties, right? Um, so retail spaces for businesses, guess what percentage were paid on time this month for retail, uh, man, I, I, this is total a guess, but not yeah. very many. No, that's a good, that's really close. Um, eight, I'm going to run per, for president yeah, on those answers. Like, right. That was awesome. That's a fantastic not commit to anything. Yeah, I love your 8% uh, paid well, on time. So a REIT, a real estate investment trust, it's like a, yep. where they put this whole thing that's together. Right. You're yep. saying that 8% of the retail, retail businesses in that yeah. Paid on time. Paid on time. 8%. Yikes. Contrast that to last month, 84% of apartment renters paid on time. Normally, that's 90%. Okay. So it is down. But then if you drop into the C class, so if you go into workforce housing, um, you know, this is properties that are built maybe in the early 80s, 1970s. People are paying, say, 800 bucks a month. You know, they've had their hours reduced. They can't work from home. They can't Zoom call like we are. You know, if they're working on a factory line or, or picking up a box or something like that, you just can't do it. So they're the ones that are waiting for their, their $1,200 check to come to come into them so they can pay. They're going to get hurt disproportionately more. Those were more in the 70 percentile paying on time. Contrast that to the class A property we're in process of acquiring right now. It came online in 2014. 98% of renters paid on time in that property. 98%. So it it depends, you know, where you are and there is a sliding scale, but you know, saying like no one, no one's paying. So let's, let's talk about worst case scenario. So in that case, those properties that, you know, less than 80% of the properties, um, residents are paying on time or have paid, then distributions are probably going to stop for that property for the month or for the quarter. Um, and that's why it's good to have a cash cushion. You know, you want to have properties that are cash flow positive. You want to have long-term debt that aligns with the whole period of those properties. And you want to have enough, ex enough, um, cash cushion in the bank so that you can float that property, say for six to 12 months, even if you had no money coming in and with the properties in our portfolio, they all fall in that range. So yeah, worst case scenario, you got to turn, you know, you got to turn the distributions off. But what I can tell you is none of those properties dropped by 35% in value, like the stock market did last month. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. How do you usually yeah. buy multifamily houses? Is it, is it, so much down debt. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So this is one of my one of my favorite aspects, and you know, I said there's three reasons that I like multifamily, but there's a fourth kind of bonus reason that I talk about in the book, and that's non-recourse debt. So what we like to say is the lender is our biggest investor, Caleb. 
So when you buy, so we, let's say you buy a 200 unit multifamily property. So 200 units, Spartan building, we come in, we bring our whole management team in, we bring our team in, we walk every single unit, we inspect every unit, we have drones flying over the roofs, over the property. Guess who else comes in with their team to underwrite the deal? Yeah, the lender the comes in. Yeah, exactly. So they come in and typically we're bringing in 70 to 80% of the, of the value of that property is a loan. So 70 to 80% loan to value. So what we're doing is from our investors, when we syndicate a deal, we're raising the capital to, for the down payment. And then we're raising reserves on top of that. And then we're also raising any amount of capital for what we call value add. And those are just simply improvements that we're making to the property. And that could be anything um, as simple as painting to totally gutting a kitchen, and replacing kitchen cabinets, all that stuff. So the bank comes in. And when I said non-recourse debt, what that means is if something goes bad on the deal, the GPs, the general partners in the deal, they're probably going to lose out. The investors in the deal, the LPs, they're not on the hook for the loan, which would not be the case if you had a single family property. If you had a house that you bought yourself, you signed on the loan. If your renter stops paying and you get sued and you lose your job, everything goes wrong. The bank's going to come to you and say, Hey, you still owe us. Yeah. So you kind of have best of both worlds and essentially unless, cause not, there's not a lot of people that are going to do this like you, like actually the whole deal together, work with the bank. And if that's the case, I'm sure you're a great resource and knowing you, you're, you're totally a giver. But for most people, you're saying this is a great place to invest. You're not on the hook for the loans. The risk is minimized going back to the Ray Dalio idea, but you still you still get to benefit from leverage without, it's kind of cool. You get to benefit from leverage without yeah. being on the hook and you get to participate most likely in depreciation and all the other benefits, yeah. um, which is super interesting. And yeah, um, yeah I'm, I, there's, a lot, there's a lot of different syndication deals. And the person that comes in my mind is Grant Cardone and oh, just yeah. how loud he gets. And to be completely frank, is a little bit obnoxious. And I, so what is the I difference? Yeah, he's doing. I'm sorry for bringing him up. I don't know if that I've ever not at all, not at all a podcast with you. But like you have Grant Cardone, who's running his yeah. mouth and doing some really interesting things, publicity wise. And you have you. What is the difference, or is there no yeah. difference other than the personality? <laughs> and and maybe the net worth, because yeah, Grant's you can add a zero for Grant. That guy is a baller, man. So first off, I, I really like. I really like what Grant's done. I went to his 10X conference last year in 2019 because I had to see it in person. And you know what he's built is truly amazing. We actually have a lot in common because he's a sales guy that got into real estate. And well, I'm kind of a real estate guy that got into sales, if you look at it, although I've been selling since I was like 12 years old. Um, so I, I see that. I like to listen to his audiobooks to kind of get me fired up. But I, what I, what I talk about Grant when people ask like, Oh, do you like Grant Cardone? Grant's kind of like a dessert that to me is a little too sweet. You know, you can have a couple bites, but you know, I can't, I can't take him in large quantities. Um, you know, my boys, they like to eat like gummy bears and Smarties and stuff like that. That's not my style. I like more rich, you know, things. We have a lot of similarities. What Grant's doing is he's raising capital through a different vehicle. So he's able to go out and publicly raise money uh, and people invest in his fund that goes and buys these properties. So it's very similar. However, it's a little bit different with respect to some of the regulations. So, you know, you can invest a very small amount of money into one of his funds and, and go buy a property. What we do, we operate under SEC regulation. It's called Reg D 506B. So we have a, a very tight knit group of investors that 
know, I've been building since 2015 that I've been working with. Even before that, if you look at the investors, I referred to other groups that I invested with. And, you know, I say we have a team of investors and our team of investors, we form an LLC, then we go buy a property one at a time. And then other groups, you know, some groups raise a fund and then yeah. they'll take that money in that fund and then they'll go buy properties one at a time or maybe two or three or five or a portfolio. Um, so it's, it's similar, but just a little bit different flavor. Does, do you guys only work with accredited investors? For the most part, yes. Okay. Can you explain that real quick? Again, this is in my book as well. Take a look on uh, SEC website or Investopedia. Um, so an accredited investor is an individual that makes $200,000 a year or more or a couple that makes $300,000 a year or more. And I believe it's for the previous two years and for the foreseeable future. Or, and this is important because I messed this one up. I thought it was and before I even really got into Not this. Not my book. It's an or. <laughs> that's right. It's an or. Yeah, that's right. Not the and asset. It's, this is a or. Yeah, this is a good or where and is a good and. So, or your net worth is a million dollars, not counting your primary residence. And again, if anybody wants to know the specific language or the specific rules, um, go ahead and, and take a look at the SEC guidelines or Investopedia and it outlines it pretty clearly there. And now with that, so then the question is, great, I'm accredited, I'm not accredited. What does that mean? So if you're accredited, you have access to more sophisticated deals than if you're not. And the reason that the SEC put these guidelines, and by the way, these things have been in place for a long time, even at those income levels, they don't want people that can't take a financial risk to invest in things where they may be harmed from a financial perspective. So think, you know, your grandmother's last hundred thousand dollars, you know, she doesn't need to be investing in something that she doesn't know or understand or can't weather that risk. Um, the thing that's kind of ironic, you know, we've, we talk about things like multifamily as alternative investments and it's like gold's alternative, real estate's alternative. And I, th- you know, I hear people say, I'm like, really like alternative. I don't, I don't like to have that on my website because I'm like these things have been around before the stock market was around. Right. So people talk about alternative investments. Well, I, I don't know. I think that, again, I think real estate is safer than the stock market. I definitely think it's more mainstream than the stock market. Um, I think when we start calling these things alternatives, it, it can do a disservice to investors from... I mean, uh, and you have a, a literal physical asset. And yeah, I'm with you, man. I, I, it's it's yeah. ironic to me that anyone can invest in the market and I get it because of liquidity, but like you look at what's going on, it's insane. And I totally get it, by the way, the whole like if you don't put your last dollar into something like this, because there is some lack of liquidity. It's not, I, mean, I don't know how you guys run it, but in most deals, you can't just get your money out. Like there's, there's, yeah. there's, so yeah. it's, it, it, I get it. And it's very ironic in the way that um, some things are good. And so everyone's yeah. locking up their money in a 401k deferring their tax, get penalized for touching and have a vehicle, a financial vehicle that could be all over the place. That's totally cool and encouraged, but real estate is alternative and I'm with you, man. Yeah. But that being said, these rules are in place for good reason. And you know, we don't, we don't, everybody that contacts us, like if you, if you call me or reach out to me and say, Hey, I'm a credit, I want to invest in your deal. That doesn't mean you're going to get to invest in, in one of our deals. Like, we're going to walk through and make sure that we're aligned. Yeah. You know, you understand what we do, that it's a good fit for what we do. And Oh, by the way, like 
I'm going to tell you all the risks because I had somebody that said, Hey, I'm interested. I'm going to put this money in this deal for my kid's college education in five years. I said, well, I don't, five years, this is, I can't give you a specific timeline. Like you said, it might be three years. It might be five years, might be seven years in that case. And I said, this probably isn't a good fit for you. And that's okay. Yep. I I love that. All right. Let's talk about the opportunity fund that you talk about in your book. And then, um, I want to, I want to finish and, and also, um, I have one last legacy question that I'm really excited about what you're going to say. But when you talk about opportunity funds, yeah. talk about whole life insurance, how do you explain it from a big picture? Because you wrote a chapter in your book about it, which is super interesting. Yeah. And I love that, by the way. Well, thank you for, for pointing that out because I actually, I updated the book before we printed it here, but I rewrote the book and added this chapter specifically I'm kind of, you know, again, like we've talked about this, like you wish you would have gone back and known. I started my insurance policies before I started investing in multifamily. And until I started talking to investors, and I'm very transparent, I tell investors how I invest, where I put my money, all of that. I started telling people about what I did with my life insurance policies. And they wanted to learn more. One of the things we, we just launched on our website, a, a webinar and a banking page to help investors learn more. How to, I call it optimize your investments. But the opportunity fund is what I call, and this is the question I ask investors. So, you know, if you call me, Kel, I said, Kel, question for you. What are you doing with your money in between deals? I call the opportunity fund your fund, your account, where you put your money in between deals. Now, it doesn't have to be life insurance. But that's, that's the vehicle that I use. And I talk about that in the book. So I think that an opportunity fund is somewhere that you, one, put your money. Two, it should have, it should have some different features. It should have a rate of return that you're getting in, in that opportunity fund because you just don't want it sitting rotting. I call, you know, if, you, if your money's just sitting there not earning interest, it's rotting, right? Your equity and your properties, if, if, if you're not doing something with that equity, your equity's rotting away. Don't let your money rot put it to work. And then also it's got to be liquid, right? You know, it's, it's great to have equity and properties, but as I learned 12 years ago when the bank said, Hey, you don't have your line of credit anymore. You know, Chase even said that came out and said, Hey, we're not doing these lines of credit. Like that's not, that's not a liquid investment. So your opportunity fund should be liquid. It should be safe and it should have some rate of return. So it's not rotting away in between deals. And for me, I love cash value life insurance. All right. And I love the, the velocity and leverage that you can use with real estate because when you start adding on those numbers and it can be a little bit like you're playing a math game, but instead of like a, yeah. a 12% rate of return, you can have a 140% rate of return. How? Because you're using leverage for the down payment and not leverage in a, in a risky way, but in a, in a, in a powerful way. So love that man. And, and that's, I mean, I really admire that you like this book is talking about a lot of different things along with that. And I just think it, it's, it's a must read. Yeah. And it's a good, I mean, there you go. Like it's a nice, you know, <laughs> your opportunity fund in the end asset. Yeah. It's a nice, it's a very nice compliment. So I think, um, you know, people that invest in real estate, what you're doing, what you're promoting, um, not only is it great for people that, that need security and a base of their financial future, but it, it can be very complimentary for people that are what I call cash flow investors as well. Right. Um, last question for you, we'll call it the legacy question. And it's your last day on earth. You're with the people that you love the most, which I had the pleasure of meeting Ethan, your son. And 
what, what would that conversation be like for them out of all the things that you've learned? Like you said earlier, and this is, we didn't even get a chance to go into this, but your, your dad passed away in a tragic airplane accident. You had one of your best friends pass away at 18 years old. Like you've, you've gone through a lot. You've gone through, like you had that really aha epiphany moment of like saying like, I don't actually want to like do this. I want to pivot to something more secure maybe I you know so out of all the things that you've learned doesn't have to be financial what would you tell Mm -hmm. your kids and family and the people that you love the most you know and this is the way I live but you know don't don't have any regrets you know live your life like you want to live it and you know you were saying like what would that conversation be Um, one of the reasons we started the next level income show the podcast and next level income was to we say put investors first through education, you know, opportunities come second. And, you know, I, I write in, in my, my life mission statement, and we've talked about this. Um, I say, I want to live a life that my boys are proud of, that they can look at me and say, I'm, I'm proud of my father, you know, for these reasons. Um, but if we were sitting there, I would want them to know that they were, they were secure, that they didn't have anything to worry about. I would, I would want to be comfortable in knowing that they could handle themselves as young men. I have two boys. So as young men, you know, from a financial perspective, but also from a personal perspective. And then also I would want to be talking about all the wonderful experiences we had, because that's what I can say. You know, I, you know, my father, unfortunately, I didn't really get to know him that well. Um, but my, my best friend, Chris, that passed away, um, or my mother, I'm thankful for the time I had. I don't, I don't look back and, and lament the time I lost. I'm thankful for the impact, you know, that Chris, especially in a short period of time had, he was like a brother to me, had on my life. And I think about that. I'm thankful for that. And I take that and I apply it to my life going forward. And, and that's what, that's what I would want. I would want them to, to look at me and say, we're going to take what you taught us, dad. We're going to take the resources you've given us, whether it's financial or or educational or spiritual, and we're going to use those to better the earth and, and vice versa. I would want to lay there on the other side or sit there on the other side and look at them and knowing that, you know, my family would be able to go out and continue the legacy that hopefully we've started here. Incredible, man. And you live that out and it's very apparent that you live your life by those values. Uh, one more time, how can people get the book? And is there any last words that you have for the Better Wealth Nation? Yeah. So uh, please c- come get our book. Like I said, I- I'd, love- I'd love to send out free copies during this time. Nextlevelincome.com. Click on the book link, put your email in, you get a free e-copy right away, put your address in, you'll get a free printed copy. Um, and what I'd like to say to the Better Wealth Nation, Caleb, is learn from Caleb, look at the and asset, um, I'm serious. Prepare yourselves because you know you have. If if you haven't done this and you're like, oh man, I wish I knew this earlier. Like I said, you, you can't look back. Just like we were talking about, you can only look forward. Take the knowledge, educate yourself, make your life better going forward. And thank you so much for what you're doing. I, I love I love your mission, Chris. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing what the future holds. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. Make sure you press subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast player.